Today we are beginning a series called Community. It's a short, punchy title exploring exactly what it says on the tin. In this season, where we are currently having no gatherings, we want to refresh our church-wide vision for community and what it looks like to practice it together. I'd highly suggest that you have a way of taking notes today, as there's a lot packed into this, this little talk. It's not one for skimming, it's actually quite a deep one. So let's get into it. Um, our text today is Mark 3, 31 to 35. It's entitled, The True Family of Jesus. So this is the word of God for us today. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. And they stood outside and they sent word for him to come out and to talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? He looked at those around him and he said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now in 2018, the UK Prime Minister Theresa May appointed Tracy Crouch a new and world first political portfolio. Loneliness Minister. After a half century decline of social connections and groups and clubs and increased antisocial behaviours, the decline had only sped up faster in recent years as the internet replaced the real social world. Reports were showing rising social anxieties, mental health issues were becoming more common and more pervasive. The recent arrival and the rapid uptake of social media and smartphone messaging apps becoming a fast, cheap and immediate form of connection into everyday life as a global connect, uh, communication network saw people now engaging online or on their phones as their baseline of interconnectedness with each other. And yet, despite living through the most globally connected moment that the world has ever witnessed, people were becoming more unknown and alone than ever. And so the UK had to appoint an isolation minister to start to solve the problem. Now, in fact, just before COVID would dominate our headlines, loneliness was set to become the world's great health battle. US Surgeon General Vic Murthy, he called loneliness a growing health epidemic, citing a study that said social isolation is, quote, associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And then, and then came along a global pandemic which would disorder our mess of isolation even more. Because, because a virus passes from person to person in close proximity with one another, we all began to socially distance and isolate in bubbles. And this has also meant no gatherings, which for us has also included so much of what we do together as a church. Now, there is a purpose to this, and I might add a compassionate and right one too. But two years of this way of life is starting to grow weary isn't it? It's having an effect on us. And for many of us, re-entry into social life after yet another lockdown last year has been tentative as the lived experience of isolation has taken a while to work its way out of our system, if it, if it has at all. Now amongst the context of COVID, there has been a really helpful analogy being thrown around amongst pastors 
And I want to share it with you today because I don't think I've shared it with you yet. It goes something like this. On a chessboard, if you can imagine a chessboard, there are a number of pieces that we play the game with. And each piece has its own restrictions of movement. And everyone knows, if you've played chess, everyone knows the best piece on the board is the queen. Now, bad chess players tend to overuse the queen, relying on it too heavily. And as a result, not learning the nuances of how to tactically use all the other pieces. Now, great chess players, they train themselves around the rest of the board by doing something interesting. They actually take the queen off the board and they play without it for a long period of time. They learn how to survive without it. And then they reintroduce it. And when it's reintroduced, it becomes an even more cherished piece on the board. Now this analogy, it means this. The Western church for too long has been like bad chess players overusing the queen. The queen being Sunday church services. But COVID has meant that globally for the church, the queen was taken off the board. It was disrupted off, taken off. And something strange has happened. We've all been a bit dumbfounded as to what other pieces to use and how to use them. It's quite revealing, isn't it? You know, how, how do we connect when there's no Sunday gathering, when that piece isn't on the board? How do we pray? How do we worship? These have been the things we've had to wrestle with for just over two years now. The invitation here is to see that there are other pieces that make up the church. And that these other pieces all have validity. Now I know for a fact that many of us are feeling disconnected without our queen, our Sunday gatherings on the board. We may feel isolated due to not having a weekly Sunday catch-up that was part of our routine and social connection. We might feel scattered. We might feel distant. We, we might even feel like we aren't even part of this anymore. But don't you know, connecting in this church is so much more than just attending a Sunday gathering. There are still other pieces on the board. And my question to you today is this. Will you learn to use the other pieces before the queen is put back on? How will you not be isolated but connected? How will you be known to other people? And how will you know others? How will you do life with others in community? And so with that, while our queen is currently still off the board for a little bit longer, let's talk about how to do life with the other pieces in Jesus' vision of community for a few weeks. Now, if I were to ask you, what is community? What would be your answer? You know, our way of defining community is often measured by a series of metrics. It's around three things usually. Number one, it's people like us. Number two, doing things like us. Number three, in a place near us. So our community might be our trusted crew of mates, or it might be those that we share interests with, like, like church, for example. Or it's those that we literally share a neighborhood in. But, but let's take some time to think about the metric Jesus would use to measure community against. Now here in today's text, we have Jesus giving us his answer. To Christ, community is the making of a new family. 
Jesus's picture of community is beyond even his own bloodline, and it's extended to a new family of his disciples. Disciples who themselves were a diverse uh, group of people who were united in relational solidarity, committed to practicing knowing the Father and living a family way of the kingdom. Jesus' disciples were themselves of opposite sides of the social spectrums. You know, some, some were hardworking fishermen, while others had worked for Rome, collecting taxes off those hardworking young men. And yet here they were, considered by Jesus as a new social structure together. Family was Jesus' vision for Christian communal life practiced at its best. Church wasn't a building or a service or a brand or some governance structure. It was people who have entered into a new connection of relationship, of belonging, of worshipping together, eating together, sharing together, working together, sacrificing together. Uh, Tom Wright, he says this in Simply Christian. He writes this. The early Christians did their best to live as an extended family, caring for each other in the way in which, in that world, extended families did. They called each other brother and sister, and they really meant it. They lived and prayed and thought like that. Children of the same father, following the same older brother, sharing goods and resources where need arose. And when they talked about love, that's the main thing they meant. Living as a single family, a mutually supporting community. The church must never forget that calling. So those who began practicing the way of Jesus joined an alternative family. The story of the church in Acts and the following letters of the New Testament to the churches they are a story of this new family of God in formation. They were sharing the journey in this new unit to navigate their world. A new social structure of interpersonal relationships, which redefined whose they were and who they were. So as we start to think about community, let us think first as the creation of an alternative family. This is the highest calling, and it's the vision of Jesus. And it's what we are to aim for. Community is family. Now, author Dr. Joseph Hallerman, in this terrific book, When the Church Was a Family, he writes, The early Christians took their culture's strong group approach to family life, appropriated it as the preeminent social model for their local Christian communities, and lived with one another like Mediterranean brothers and sisters. And the early Christians turned the world upside down. When the church was a family, the church was on fire. May God help us recapture Jesus' vision for authentic Christian community today. And Dr. Hallerman, he proposes th uh, four New Testament church values that we must return to. Firstly, we share our hearts with one another. Now, psychologists call this effective solidarity. You know, in Christian terms, it's emotional attachment where the Holy Spirit weaves our hearts together as we spend time together and we share life's wins and life's losses. Uh, the Apostle Paul shared his emotional bond regularly with his churches in his letters, exclaiming to them how much he missed them, how he loved them, how much he longed for them, how he desired them to stand firm and to grow and to mature. 
It was the sharing of heart. Secondly, we share our stuff with one another. Literally, the physical things we have become shared and they become communal. So this can be financial help for someone who needs it. This can be hospitality of an open home. This can be the generosity of a meal that is shared right through to the loaning of possessions for getting jobs done around the house or for leisure to be enjoyed. The early church shared their possessions to such an extent that no one among them was in need. Number three, we stay, embrace the pain, and grow up with one another. Now, don't be sucked into idealizing here. Family stuff is tough stuff. We will experience as many failures, as many victories along the way. And as any therapist will tell you, anyone who leaves a family due to conflict often just takes their dysfunctional relational strategies and their behaviors to another place where, surprise, surprise, they encounter it all over again, the very issues they thought they had left behind. So we stay and we'll grow through it. And fourthly, finally, Family is about more than me, the husband and the wife, and the kids. What this means is, in the ancient Mediterranean context of these first Christian communities, the most important dynamic was not parent to child, but actually the most important dynamic was sibling to sibling. The common bond in Christ's family is that we are brothers and sisters, sibling to sibling. We actually are brothers, we, are, we actually are our brothers and sisters keeper. And so in Christian community, we are invited to view our family lives wider than just our natural parents and our siblings. We get to enjoy the relational benefits of having more siblings in our lives and all that that brings. And so to Dr. Hellerman, in this alternative family, we share our hearts, we share our stuff, we stay, we grow, and we extend siblings. Now, this all sounds pretty amazing, but there's a massive problem in our midst. We don't live in this first century, highly communal Mediterranean culture. We live in a highly individualized Western culture. And the King Freedom and the non-negotiable value in our culture is our right to choose things that are best for us. Often taking the path of what is most pleasurable, what is most convenient, what is most comfortable. Simply, we're actually driven, we're actually motivated by that which makes us feel good. Now, anthropologists speak of people groups viewing their connectedness in the world in two categories. First category, strong group. Second category, weak group. In a society with a strong group view, they will make decisions first based on what is best for the wider group. And in weak group view, it's a society that makes decisions first and foremost for the individual. So if we grew up in Asian or African or Pacifica or Maori Fano, we'll probably know what life in the strong group view looks more, uh, far more than those of us who have grown up in Western families, which are often the weak group view, and instead highly individualistic. You know, we've been socialized and discipled by this hyper-individualism 
around us to such an extent, we actually can't imagine church as a family. You know, for many of us, it's not seen by default as a community, but instead we see church as a consumable. For example, when we choose a church, think for a moment about the markers we often use. We often say things like, I like the worship style. It connects me to God. Or I like the teaching. It feeds me. Or I like that there are people my age. Or I like that there are fellow vegans. I like, I like, I like. None of this is wrong. Not in itself. But just look at the first two reoccurring words that are the driver here. Look what keeps repeating. I like. Here's the kicker. As much as we choose by what gives us pleasure, we equally discard when that pleasure is gone. I was talking recently with one of our church farmer who posed a challenging question to me. She said this, you know, if a person from the first century church showed up to one of our gatherings, what would they recognize of it, do you reckon? I've been thinking about what she asked for the last week since she asked it to me. And as I wrote those words above in this talk today, I find myself uncomfortable and sort of squirming internally as I think of explaining to that first century believer about how much we personally invest to choose church the way we do by our own individualistic and personal preferences. I, I honestly don't think they would understand. I think it would be an alien experience for them who for so much of church was about putting the group first, about putting their brothers and sisters before them, about support, serving, giving, and sharing. I mean, imagine explaining to them what church shopping is. I just, I just don't think they'd understand. And as a way of as we're looking at that, it then shows us we have some significant rewiring to do, don't we? Because let's consider how we live into this vision of an alternative family for real. You know, to live in Jesus' vision of community, because it's just so unfamiliar to us, we must practice community, practice it, as in discipline ourselves and choose it, intentionally deciding to grow through it and into the vision that it invites us to live into. The church has a call, uh, has, a, has a name for this practice. It's called fellowship, the practicing of fellowship. It's a purposeful choosing to live in kinship with others, a submitting of our lives in, relation, in relationship to others, that the space that we make there may grow in us only what relationship with others can grow and can reveal. So practicing it means sticking to it. Now, according to M. Scott Peck, any group of strangers coming together to create a community goes through four distinct and predictable phases that must be journeyed through as we stick at it. It starts with the first stage, which is called pseudo-community. Uh, this is the stage of the honeymoon. Members are extremely pleasant with one another and they avoid all disagreement. <laughs> People want to be loving. They withhold some of the truth about themselves and their feelings in order to avoid conflict. Individual differences are minimized, they're unacknowledged, maybe even ignored. 
And the group may appear to be functioning smoothly on the surface, but individually, um, intimacy and honesty are being crushed. Then the group moves from pseudo-community to chaos. And at this stage, we enter the stage of conflict and fear. Because once individual differences surface, the group almost immediately moves into this chaos. Individual differences come out into the open and the group attempts to obliterate them. It's a stage of uncreative, unconstructive fighting and struggle. It's no fun. Lots of us have got to this stage and we have bailed. We've disappeared. Not realizing that there's actually more to come if we will stick through it. Because after chaos comes emptiness. The third stage, emptiness. This is the stage of acceptance. And the way through chaos to true community is through emptiness. It is the hardest and the most crucial stage of community development. It means members empty themselves of barriers to communication. The most common barriers are expectations, preconceptions, prejudices, ideology, theology, solutions, the need to heal, the need to fix, the need to convert, the need to solve, the need to control. In this stage of emptiness, what is ushered in is members begin to share their own brokenness, their defects, their failures, their fears, rather than acting like I have it all together. And when this, when this starts to happen, it brings us to true community, the fourth stage. And this is the stage of belonging. Because in true community, what emerges as the group chooses to embrace not only the light of the good stuff, it lets in life's darkness. True community is both joyful, but it's also realistic. The transformation of the group from a collection of individuals into true community requires little deaths, little deaths along the way. But it's also a time of group death and group dying because through this emptiness and this sacrifice will grow true community. Members will begin to speak of their deepest and their most vulnerable parts and others will just simply listen. There'll be plenty of tears, tears of sorrow and of joy and an extraordinary amount of healing begins to occur. So to become a family is to move through the stages of true community, a two true community. And to that first century believer, that was what being a church was. It wasn't staying at pseudo community. It wasn't giving up in the chaos. It was the journey to the genuine article. It wasn't individualistic, it was communal. It wasn't something that was just attended. It was a state of belonging. You know, to practice community, may we commit to that movement and see it as the work of God amongst us as he grows us into a truly alternative family. Now to finish, I want to close with Dr. Hallerman's first opening words out of his book. I referred to it earlier. He begins with a very confronting challenge straight out of the gate. And I think that we need to keep in mind this, this challenge amongst all that is possible as we're considering the work of community. This community that we desire to experience. So here is what he says as the opening sentences. And I wonder if these words might stir something in us to act on in the coming weeks. So Dr. Hellman's opening words to his book, When the Church Was a Family.
Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. If I may, allow me to shorten that right down and just rewrite it into something a little smaller and punchier. My version would be this. In becoming like Jesus, there is no lone wolfing allowed. I mean, make no mistake. Do not kid yourself. You will grow in the way of Jesus, mainly with a commitment to practicing life with others. Alone or drifting in pseudo-relationships from place to place, you won't. As we have been saying for years at Central Vineyard, we often speak about it like this. We have circles. The deeper things of discipleship don't happen in the rows on Sunday, but in the circles of people that we do life with. Life in community is where we actually grow. So if I could revisit the analogy that was at the top of this talk, while the queen is off the board, there is still a great space of Central Vineyard to belong in right now and to grow in. There is a piece on the board for community. And you may need to learn to use it for the first time. Maybe you need to revisit it. Maybe you just need to rejuvenate it. But please, take this opportunity to learn what this other piece, circles, which is on the board, does. And for a few more weeks, we're going to break it down a little bit further. So come back next week and we're going to look at knowing and naming our stages of community and how we can build further connection in God's alternative family, no matter what life stage, no matter what season we are currently in. So that's next week. Love to see you then. Grace, peace, and may we enter further this alternative family that Jesus has beckoned us all to May we practice community in it. And as we do, may we grow.